Now I want to minister for a little while this morning through a message that I'm calling a life of no condemnation. And what I want you to see through the message today is simply this. First of all, grace is a wrecking ball on condemnation. Condemnation cannot stand in the presence of grace any more than darkness can stand in the presence of light. Light always displaces darkness. I don't care how long darkness has occupied a space. When you turn on the light, darkness has to go. Grace always displaces condemnation. Just like truth always displaces lies. Always. When condemnation goes, fear will go with it. This is so important because this is what the primary struggle with is in the body of Christ is you see so many expressions of fear. People are so afraid. And it's not just afraid of things in society. They're afraid of God. I want you to picture this. Imagine this is condemnation, okay? And then this is fear. You see its roots? Fear is rooted in condemnation. So when condemnation goes then fear has nothing to thrive on. It has to leave. We need to meditate on these kind of things because there's not a person in here that doesn't have a residue of condemnation, a residue of fear. The more you sit under this message of grace, the freer you're going to get. You're going to run like a deer. You really are. But again, fear is rooted in condemnation. But what we have been taught in the church is fear is like a dandelion. We just mow them over, and guess what? The very next day, it pops right back up again. you got to deal with the root system, or you cannot deal with the fruit. So if we deal with condemnation, and the only thing I've seen in the 23 years that I've been in ministry, the only thing that deals with this kind of a root is grace. It is a new change in the mind. It's a paradigm shift, as Peter always says. Now, the litmus test of is condemnation present in our lives is simply the manifestation of fear. That's nothing to be condemned about because it's like even in this room, it's bright up here, but I see some shadows back there. But as the light increases or as grace increases in your life, as you become more and more aware of God's unconditional love, His absolute acceptance, His extravagant grace, His outrageous generosity, His matchless mercy, as you become aware of His attributes like this, I'm telling you, those shadows get pushed back farther and farther because the light just gets brighter and brighter and brighter. I heard the story several years ago about a man who fell from the roof of a 100-story building. There were some people that were grilling on the balcony of the 74th floor, and do you know what they heard him say when he went by? Everything's okay so far. <laughs> there was a window washer hanging off the same building. He was down around the 40th floor. Guess what he heard him say when he went by? <laughs> Everything's okay so far. Now, friends, let me tell you something. If you're looking for a story that showcases the most optimistic man in the world, don't look any further. You've just ran into it right there. But as I was thinking about that, I remember hearing that story about 20 years ago, and then I saw it in print about five years ago. And when I saw it in print, there was a caption above it that said, world's most optimistic man. And then in preparation for this message, when that story came back to my mind, I thought, is that right? Is this really the world's most optimistic man? 
Or should it actually say, world's most fearless man? You see, because there's no man in his right mind that can fall off a 100-story building and be optimistic that when he hits the ground, he's just going to dust himself off and get up and walk to work. I mean, you'd have to be out of your mind. You can't throw a man off a 100-story building and have him hit the sidewalk and not change his constitution anymore. And you can set a glass of water on Pluto and not have it freeze. There's just some laws in place. There's some dynamics in place. It happens like that because of extremes. I think he's a fearless man, to be honest with you. But what I want to say about this, this is exactly the way it is with the gospel of grace. You cannot, oh, you cannot, let me say it again, you cannot sit under this message for any length of time and not have it change your constitution, not have it rewire the way you think. It rewires your electrical system. It rewires your plumbing. And as I said earlier, I had to learn how to talk all over again. I had to learn how to walk. I had to learn how to teach and preach all over again. You know what? I had to learn how to pray all over again. Because I was saying a lot of dumb stuff. There were times in my marriage when Valerie and I first got married years ago, we'd be praying together and I would say something and she would say, all of a sudden she'd say, Lord, I don't agree with him. And, and, and it was kind of offensive at first. I, I'd stop and go, what do you mean you don't agree with me? That's what she would do. And I'm like, what do you mean you don't agree with me? But you know what? I'm telling you what, if you want Papa to be powerful in your life, then you have to say what he says. Listen, we can say a lot of dumb stuff and Papa's just going to love us. I mean, our kids have done that. We've done that to our parents, right? We've said a lot of crazy things, a lot of dumb things, and we just keep loving them. But if you really want power, you really want agreement, then you have to say what God says and it releases power. We had to learn how to sing all over again. Five years ago, when we planted Triumph of Grace Ministries, our daughter Sarah used to be our worship leader at our former ministry. Remember before the 10-year sabbatical, the 10-year marination? Our daughter Sarah was our worship leader, and she said, I'm going to join you there, Mom and Dad, and I'm going to be your worship leader again. Her mama said, all right, well, you meet us over at our house on a certain day and bring your song binders with you. And Sarah brought three dusty song binders, song binders that had not been opened in 10 years. And her mother got on the floor with those song binders and she began to go through song by song, looking at the lyrics. And she began to create three piles. One pile was the pile that wasn't going to make the cut. And that pile looked like Mount Everest. The pile that was making the cut looked like a little anthill. Why? Because the ones that weren't making the cut were songs that didn't point to a finished work. Why would you want to reinforce that mentality in your heart when you're singing things that don't point to grace, don't point to a finished work? You keep begging for things. You keep asking Daddy for things that He's already given you. Oh, Daddy, give me the keys to the kingdom of God. I already gave them to you, son. Daddy, give me grace. I'll tell you, here's the one that used to get me. And I remember in my early days, I'd go to my church where I used to pastor, and I'd walk in there all by myself, and I'd go through a box of Kleenex easy, crying at the altar, you know, you know, and, and I would have the music playing, and the one that used to tear me up all the time was creating me a clean heart, oh God. I would play that song, and that was one of the songs that Valerie had to sort through. I was just being a good daddy. I was sitting in the chair. I just zipped my lips. I didn't say nothing. Meanwhile, Mama was like a threshing floor, man. She was just going through these things. But creating me a clean heart, he's already done that. And renew a right spirit within me? He's already done that. Why would you sing that song? And then the, the lyrics go, Cast me not away from thy presence, O Lord. Yeah. Right. So 
I mean, that song's got a beautiful melody to it. I used to love that song. But it's hard for me to sing stuff like that that are just so wacko and out there. Take not thine Holy Spirit from me. Thank you for your enthusiasm, Peter. You may sit down. <laughs> I, I just figured I'd get that in, brother. Are you with me so far? <laughs> Amen. Sorry about that, Peter. I love this guy right here. I do. I love him. I love this gospel, he says. And I love this gospel, too. So anyway, Valerie and Sarah sat there on the floor as she sorted through the song binders. And then there was that center section of songs that we would go, you know, this song would be okay if it didn't contain that one lyric. You know, it's like, I don't want to throw away the whole song because of that one thing. And so we would say, Sarah, how about if we just change those words? We'll just write new lyrics for that area right there. And the crocodile tears would come because it was just like unsacred to change somebody's song? It took a while for Sarah to be able to finally do that. But it was like when she saw the big pile that we had set aside, you know what it spelled out to her? I've wasted a lot of time, number one. But number two, I've got a lot of work ahead of me to learn a lot of new songs. It was the same thing Daddy did to me. We said, I just want you to shred your sermon, son. You won't be needing these anymore. The story of the fallen man is not in place to take us to some sort of pep assembly so that we can become more optimistic. You see, I was a drummer in high school, and I know what pep assemblies are about. You know, if you're going to have a big game, you get the whole school to come down to the gymnasium. And we'd find our way up there in the corner of that, that, those bleachers, and when everything was right, the pom-pom squad was right there, and everybody was staged, we'd be looking at that band director, and we would begin that cadence. And we would beat the stuffings out of those drums. And in a gymnasium where it has nowhere to go, you know what it's doing is going into the heart of people. And what it was doing is it was stirring people up emotionally. And then the pom-pom squad would come out and they would do their thing. And then you have a motivational speaker that would come out. And we would think we were totally undefeated. But guess what I found out? We still lost games. <laughs> You'd think we're going to face the giants, but we're going to beat them. But I found out we still lost games. As I was thinking about that, when you see the word optimistic, I don't even use that word much. I use the word hope. Because the biblical word hope means a confident expectation of good. I am confident my father's good. I am confident he's going to be good to me. I have this confidence. It's not an arrogance. It's a confidence. And you know what? Grace has done this to me. My wife used to always say, grace will wreck you. And it does in a good way. It changes everything. But it is a confident expectation of good. And if you've ever stood in front of a wishing well, you see all the coins. Some people throw jewelry and pictures in there. What are they doing? They're wishing in nothing, really. And in preparation for this, I heard the Holy Spirit say, son, you don't have a wishing well hope. You have an it is well hope. And where is it well at? It's well in our souls. That's the songwriter's song. It is well. It is well. It is well in my soul. But the soul is bigger than just the emotions. If you just allow it to be just the emotional realm, it will have you running around like a crazy man. It's this mind that is transformed and this will that gets transformed with grace. 
a confident expectation of good. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, the Bible says, therefore, since we have been justified, that means we have been declared innocent. Oh, I love it. We have been declared innocent. He didn't just say, you're not guilty. He said, no, I'm going to take it a step further. You're innocent. Therefore, since we have been justified, how? By faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope, there it is, of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our suffering. Now, we don't like that one, do we? But we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. There it is again. And hope does not disappoint us. Why? Because it says God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who He has given us. So that opens up with a peace from God. It closes on verse 5 with a love from God. But sandwiched between all that peace that He gave you and all that love He gave you while we were sinners, He said, I'm going to tell you three times so that you really get this thing. You have a confident expectation of me being good to you. Hope, hope, hope. Amen. Amen. It's true. So, as I was thinking about this, because I grew up in a Pentecostal church, the preacher's got a cadence too. Sometimes it still tries to come out on me. I'm sorry, but it just does. You know, they get down in that cadence and they start saying stuff like, and God formed man from the dust of the ground and ha, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. And he stood up and he started worshiping his father. Sorry, I didn't mean to do that. He stood up and started worshiping his father. Can I talk to somebody in here? And what are they doing? They're pulling on our emotions is what they're doing. They're pulling on our emotions. And sometimes I just want to go, um, you know, you ain't really said anything yet. You know, if you were to take just what you said and put it on paper so I could read it, I'd go, but yet you get all these, amen, pastor, amen, preacher, come on, preach it, brother, preach it, brother. You ain't said nothing yet to set anybody free yet. <laughs> you haven't said a thing yet to set anybody free. I like Simon Cowell from America's Got Talent because if someone comes out there and they really don't have it going, Simon is the one guy that will say, excuse me, stop it, stop it, stop it. And he'll say, this ain't working for you. And there's been times that I've been in churches, especially since grace has been dripping in my heart. Oh, I just want to go, excuse me, just a second, preacher. Uh, this ain't working for you. Uh, and this ain't working for me. And this really ain't working for nobody in here. But you know what restrains me? Grace, of course. Grace teaches us to say no <laughs> to things like that. You know what? Here's what happens, though is when we just get our emotions stirred up, it becomes a transitory glory. It's a glory that's faded, usually by the parking lot. 90% of what you hear in a church service is lost by the parking lot, and the rest of it's lost through the week. Listen, there's 168 hours in a week. If you throw in two hours for Sunday service, now you're down to 166. Throw in a Wednesday night, you're down to 164. Go to Thursday night prayer meeting, you're down to 162 hours. 162 hours that you're not sitting under some sort of hype and something moving your emotions where you need substance. Jesus is not a shadow. Jesus is the substance. He's not a shadow. He is the substance. He is the essence of daddy. He's the essence of God. It's true. It's just a fading glory. All that was moved was your emotions. That is all. 
No. See, the story that I told you about the fallen man is, listen to me, is to incite us and to invite us and to ignite us to begin to dream, to begin to consider, to begin to ponder, to begin to wonder, to begin to think, to begin to meditate on what life would look like, listen to me carefully, in the absence of fear. Think about that for a second. What would life look like in the absence of fear? Now, I'm talking about some heavy hitters here now. i got to deal with some stuff. I'm talking about heavy hitters like the fear of rejection. Oh, that's a hurtful fear. It's a fear I experienced. I can tell you from firsthand, I know what that fear feels like. I was put in a foster home when I was six years old. That wasn't because my mama didn't like me. She put three of her sons in there. She had five kids and she had surgeries and my daddy ran off. So she had no choice. She put us in temporary foster care. We spent two years there. But you tell a six-year-old he's not being rejected when that happens. That feels like rejection. I'm talking about the fear of abandonment. And my daddy did. He would run off and sometimes be gone for years and then come back home. And so that was a deep, deep fear. And I didn't want that to ever happen again in my life. But listen to me carefully. I'm talking about the fear, potentially, of disappointing God. People live there. They feel like they're going to disappoint God, or they are a disappointment to God. Someone asked me last night, they said, can you tell me the difference between guilt, shame, and condemnation? I said, oh, I'll I'll be happy to. Guilt says you've made a mistake. Shame says you are the mistake. And condemnation says you're the one that's going to have to pay for your mistake. Oh, friends, it seems like such a subtle thing. Guilt, shame, fear, they saw it, they sound the same. Oh, they're kind of in the same family, but they are radically different because condemnation intensifies. I'm talking about this latent, inside, religious fear that we're going to disappoint God. Listen, it cannot happen. Why? Because Daddy sees you from the beginning to the end, doesn't he? You know, disappointment is unmet or failed expectations. He already knew what you were going to do. That doesn't mean he approved of it, but he already knew you can't disappoint the Father. You show me the words in the Bible that says, Son, I'm just really disappointed in you. You're not going to find because he loves us. He wants to dispense mercy. He wants to dispense grace and all of his goodness to us. I'm talking about the fear, listen to me, of being disqualified. And many believers walk with that, that somehow that one day God is going to point a finger at you and he's going to point a finger at a holy angel and he's going to say he's disqualified, bind him hand and foot and cast him out in the altar of darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those scriptures used to scare the stuffings out of me when I was a kid, but they're not in our covenant. They're not for us. I'm talking about the fear of failure. And then when I was thinking about this, I thought, man, the disciples walked with Jesus for three and a half years. And yet they were afraid all the time. They watched him turn water into wine. That's pretty cool all by itself. They watched him walk on water. They watched him calm the raging seas. They watched him cast out devils. They watched him raise the dead. They watched him take a withered hand and straighten it. They watched him open the eyes of the blind, unstop the ears of the deaf, reach in and grab the mute's tongue and say, go ahead and talk. They watched him do all these wonderful miracles, feed the 5,000 with two fish and five loaves of bread. And yet they were still afraid. Well, friends, before we throw the disciples under the church bus, I want you to know something here. The disciples did not have the Holy Spirit living on the inside of them. But number two, they were still under an old covenant. Listen, the new covenant didn't start until Jesus was crucified, buried, and then resurrected. New covenant. 
New Testament is not New Covenant necessarily where it starts. It gets into the New Covenant, but it's much later in the chapters in the New Testament. So they were afraid that they didn't have the Holy Spirit living in them. They were under an old covenant. But you know what? These were tax collectors and fishermen. They had spent a lifetime dealing with disappointments and condemnation. So what was their default mechanism to go back what they were used to? And so Jesus came along and he dropped this word in their hearts in John chapter 14 and verse 27. He said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world giveth give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. What is Jesus saying? He's talking to his disciples and he says, peace I leave with you. When Jesus said, peace, I leave with you, what he was saying is there's no expiration on it. It's not milk that will go sour. It's not cornflakes that will go stale. He said, I'm going to leave my peace with you. I am the Prince of Peace. I'm taking my peace and I'm going to leave it with you. And then he says, my peace I give unto you. Now, I have to ask you this question. Did any of you earn his peace? Did any of you work for his peace? Do any of us deserve his peace? No. So if he gave it to us anyway, what is that called? That It's called a gift, right? Here's the thing I love about gifts. When it comes to God, the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. The gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. That means he will never take them back. You can't lose them. You can't misplace them. And Jesus said, I'm going to give you peace. What kind of peace was he talking about? He's talking about the same kind of peace in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, where it opened up and said, therefore, having been justified by God, we have peace with God. He said, that's the kind of peace I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you the peace that has been made between you and my Father. And he said, I'm going to leave that with you. I'm going to give it to you. But he said, I'm not going to give it to you the way the world gives it. How does the world give it? Conditions. He said, my peace is unconditional. It comes with limitations. It comes with exclusions when the world gives it. That's not the kind of peace that Jesus gives. He said, I'm going to give you a peace that surpasses all understanding. It doesn't come with fine print, friends. It's been nailed to the cross. The Bible says not only was Jesus nailed to the cross and you were nailed to the cross with him, but he says the written code, that fine print was nailed to the cross. I love it. So, let me ask you this question. I don't want you to blurt it out. Just think of a word in your head. What is the opposite of peace? Just get your word. I would say probably 98% of the people in this room pick war. The opposite of peace is war. Even the Bible says there's a time for peace, there's a time for war. All right? That's a good answer, but it's a superficial answer. Well, the opposite of peace is conflict. Good answer, but superficial. Because what we're dealing with is things on the surface. See, war has a deeper root system in it. We need to get into subterranean and get down to the root. So the opposite really of peace is fear. And fear is rooted in condemnation. Now, let me deal with some fears here before we get into the remedy, okay? The top three fears. Number one, flying in an airplane. Anytime you take a group this size, I'd be almost certain that there would be somebody in here, put them on the East Coast, and they had to go to the West Coast, you said, I'll buy you an airplane ticket or I'll pay the gas for you to drive. There are people in this room that would say, I'll spend three, four days beating up the road rather than a four-hour flight. Why? Because they're afraid of flying. I was there at one time. I could get on the wing of a plane now and not be afraid. Grace did that to me. Number two is the fear of public speaking. And there are people in this room even probably 
If I said to you, I'll write you a check for $10,000 if you'll just come up here and tell us about Jesus for 45 minutes, there are people in here that would kindly say, no, thank you, Pastor Mark, and yet you need the money. And the third fear is the fear of death itself. Now, listen, I don't know who came up with all this data, but if I would have, before Grace, had to pick my top three fears, it would have been those three. They nailed it with me. I hated flying, I hated public speaking, and I hated the thought of death. I hated anything that's associated with death. In fact, I think I hated probably the fear of public speaking more than flying or dying, to be honest with you. And I'm going to tell you why I hated the fear of public speaking is at a very young age, I was walking, I mean, a very little boy, I was walking along the swimming pool one day, the public swimming pool, and two little boys my size came up to me and they said to me, do you know who you look like? And I said, uh, no, who do I look like? They said, you look like that little boy from Mad Magazine. You, do you know who I'm talking about, this little guy? Can you see him? That's one homely little boy right there. But you know what? I did look like him. I had that funny little haircut, had those freckles like that, kind of cross-eyed like that, missing a tooth. I looked like him. I didn't know exactly who they were talking about, but when I saw that image, that told me what other people thought of me. And what happens is what you learn in childhood, you'll grow into as an adult. Anything that sounds anything like that, that's why I grew up a fighter, man. I, I, was, I fought my way through school. I was like a bully magnet, man. I'm, people were always punching on me. And I, I was a little guy in school, four foot 11 in the ninth grade, but I just didn't back down from anybody. I, I'm thankful that uh, the Lord took that fight out of me and gave me a new kind of fight, but this is what I kind of look like. So it kind of scarred this image in my head. And then I was thinking about when Adam failed in the garden, one of the first questions God asked him is, who told you you were naked? And I was thinking about that even yesterday, and this came back to me, who told you you were ugly? Because you were made in my likeness, and you were made in my image, and when I behold you, I see someone so beautiful. I see someone so accepted in my love, someone so adorable. And so these images scar us for a long time, but I'm telling you, I don't see myself as this little boy anymore. The reason people are afraid of death, and ministers have taught this, and I even ran with it for a lot of years, is they would say, you know, one day God is going to reach out there and he's going to grab every nation and he's going to grab every tribe and he's going to grab every tongue and he's going to sit them all in one place. And then he's going to take those two fingers that he wrote the Ten Commandments with and he's going to draw a jumbotron screen in the sky. And everybody's going to be gathered and everybody's going to watch every one of your failures. They're going to see everything you ever thought, everything you did, all that shameful stuff that nobody ever found out about. They're going to show it on the jumbotron for all to see. Friends, that is ridiculous. What is the common denominator in those three top fears? I'll tell you what they are. And watch the progression. It is failure, judgment, and then condemnation. In other words, I'm flying in a plane, the plane fails. It flies into the side of the mountain, the mountain judges it, and everything's condemned. I stand in front of a group of people, and I begin to talk, and suddenly I fail. I can't find my words. I fail somehow, miserably. And then everybody's judging me, and I feel nothing but utter condemnation. And then I always felt if I stood in front of God sometime when I died. See, the Bible says it is appointed that a man wants to die, but after this, the judgment, right? Not the judgment for me in that sense. I had a brother who went on to be with the Lord last week. What happened? His body failed. And then I thought, well, what follows failure? Judgment. And then ultimately, you've seen everything, God, you're going to condemn me. 
It is nothing like that. But that is the root system. And as this message of grace begins to deal with our hearts, it begins to massage our hearts. It gives us the ability to see Papa the way he really is, loving and kind and gracious and sweet and wants to have you jump up on his lap and whisper in your heart sweet things. It took me a long time to be able to see that. The message of grace has done that for me. How do I know that's not going to happen to me someday? Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, look at these words. Love, or another way to say that is God. Love and God are interchangeable because the Bible says God is love. God doesn't just have love, God is love. God does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. Look at that. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Let me ask you a question. Is sin wrong? Yeah, sin is wrong. But it says love. In other words, when you are tethered to love, when you are attached to God's love, Daddy's love, He says, I do not see your sins. Love keeps no record of wrongs. David said it a little bit different way in Psalm 23 when he said this. He said, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For Thou art with me. Thy rod and Thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. What's your enemies? Failure. (laughs) What's your enemies? Rejection. What's your enemies? Judgment. What's your enemy? Condemnation. He said, you're going to prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And we've always taken that as, there's going to be a bunch of devils at the table. They're going to be sitting off in the distance. Some of those people you went to school with that were enemies. No, these are your enemies. Failure, judgment, condemnation. Guilt, shame, that's your enemy. And he said, you prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. And he says, you anoint my head with oil. And then he says, my cup runneth over. I love this. He said, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But I want to draw your attention to a very important word here. In Psalm 23, that very first verse, he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That Hebrew word behind that word want is chaser. Chaser means to fail. See, you looked at that scripture and you thought, oh man, the the Lord is my shepherd. I'm not going to lack. I'm not going to want anything in life. Oh, it's bigger than that. It's got a bigger heart than that. In other words, this scripture actually reads, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not fail. Or another way to say it, it's really the attitude of because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not fail. And if you really want to drive home the point, it's because the Lord is my shepherd, I cannot fail. Why? Because sheep are not trusting in themselves. Sheep are trusting in, come on brother man, sheep are trusting in the shepherd. I Listen man, I got about that much confidence in me, but I got all the confidence in the world in Christ, and I'm in Christ, and so my confidence is in Christ. It's in Him. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I cannot fail. The root system that fear grows out of is condemnation. Listen, you can't water an acorn on the table sitting on a flat surface and then have it grow into an oak tree. No, it has to have a root system, doesn't it? It has to have a root system. And so when Adam ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what was his first response? Fear. He was afraid. So why did Adam experience fear? Because the root system of condemnation grew in his heart. That tree was off limits. He partook of it, and that grew in his heart. 
the root of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, spiritually speaking, was condemnation. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil represented the law. I'm not talking about the Mosaic law, but it was a law that God gave Adam. It was more than a suggestion. He said, Adam, the day you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. But there was another tree. Why do we put so much attention on the tree that Adam ate from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Sitting right next to that tree or somewhere near was the tree of life. The tree of life. And I remember when Jesus hung on a cross. The Bible says he was crucified between two thieves. And when the crucifixion began, the Bible says both of those thieves were blaspheming our Jesus. They were both railing at him. They were both accusing him. But then something began to stir in one of those thieves' hearts. What was it that made him stir like that? Because Jesus didn't really say that much from the cross. Was it when Jesus said, I'm thirsty? No, it wasn't that. You see, that thief could identify with that. Oh, he said, I can identify with that. I'm thirsty too. Was it when Jesus said, Mother, behold thy son. John, behold thy mother. Well, I'm sure that thief had a mother too. He could identify with that. But the thing he couldn't identify with is when Jesus said the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He had no place in his heart that he could attach that to. There was no way to identify with that kind of love. Who in the world would say, forgive the people that are crucifying us? I believe it was there that he said, oh, you're someone special. In fact, what he said was, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, I got a better idea. Today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. You look it up one time, I don't know if your pastor's preached on it or not, but that word paradise in the Greek is the word Eden. It is the word Eden. And Jesus was saying, listen, man is banned from the Garden of Eden. So how about if the Garden of Eden comes to you? Today! Brother Todd, today oh, you're going to be with me in paradise. You're going to be inside of me. We're going to fulfill that scripture in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. Oh, it makes me happy. <laughs> Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live. I don't just exist. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen. Wow. Again, what does the ministry of the law do? The ministry of the law does one thing. It brings condemnation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7-9, through 9, we find these words. Now, the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone. There's only one thing that was engraved in letters of stone back then they were talking about. They are talking about the ministry of death. They're talking about the Ten Commandments. I was ministering several years ago to a preacher's daughter. I figured preacher's daughters need to be saved too. So I was ministering to her and I said, are you saved? She said, yeah. I said, tell me about your plan of salvation. She said, I keep the Ten Commandments. I said, name one of them. She said, thou shalt not steal. I said, you're 10% saved. Name another one. She said, well, thou shalt not commit adultery. I said, you're 20% saved. Name another one. We got up to about number five. I said, name another one. She said, I can't. I said, young lady, by your own plan of salvation, you are lost. But let me tell you the good news. Most people shouldn't remember the Ten Commandments because we're not saved by the Ten Commandments. We're saved by His grace. We're saved by His heart. 
We're saved by his sacrifice. We're saved by the gift of righteousness. Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory. Look at these next words. Transitory though it was. That means it was just passing through. It was fleeting. It was temporary. It was like a pep assembly at one time. Just passing through. That's all it was. It says, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? And then it says, if the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, and we're not taking that away from it, it was. But it says, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? We're talking about an eternal ministry. Internal, eternal We're talking about one that doesn't pass through. We're talking about one that comes to live. We're talking about one that comes to stay. We're talking about one that comes to abide and live forever inside of you. Your pastor's a big guy, isn't he? Oh, he's a big guy. I thought I was big. I'm six foot tall and about 200 pounds, but man, I stand next to Peter. I'm like, what's up, Peter? But I was thinking about this the other day. I thought, if you took Peter and you took three friends his exact size and shoehorned them all into a 1960 Volkswagen Beetle, and then put them in the northeast corner of Maine going to the southwest corner of California, you know what you'd have a recipe for? Condemnation. I'll tell you what, they'd condemn your bodies and you'd condemn that VW. Because we're not made for condemnation. In the same way, when we carry condemnation, what does it do? It tears up our suspense system. We've got to get rid of condemnation. But for too long, the church has been saying, well, just rebuke it out. Just shout it out. Well, let me ask you a question. How's that been working for you? It doesn't work. That's not the way you get rid of condemnation. Condemnation is displaced. Displaced by something else coming to live inside of you. And take that same space. The Bible says fresh water and bitter water do not flow from the same spring. I'm not saying Jesus is not in there, but when that revelation of grace begins to expand, when it begins to take more territory in your heart and in your mind, I'm telling you, one of the first things you'll find out is you're no longer afraid of stuff. You say, Mark, are you sure about that? I'm positive. I just told you, I used to be afraid of flying. I hated the thought of public speaking. When I opened my mouth, it sounded like a rattlesnake was on the inside of me. Shaking so bad. I know this works. And when Daddy called me to preach the same year I got saved, 1995, in December of that year, I said, no, Daddy. (laughs) I didn't even call him Daddy back then. I was too religious. No, no, God, you got to be talking to my brother. He's the orator in our family. He's the gifted one. It's not me, Papa. No, he said, no, it's you. And it would take me two and a half to three years, finally, before I would say, i got to come clean with this. My Father has called me to preach the gospel. And so, through the finished work of grace, what we discover, hear my heart on this thing, is we are no longer compatible with condemnation. Now, this is the way the Holy Spirit said it to me when I was driving around the other day. He said to me, persecution is inevitable, condemnation is optional. And I have decided, based upon the finished work of the cross, to reject all feelings of condemnation. Why? Because condemnation is not in any of our covenants. Condemnation is not designed for the believer. Condemnation is about as compatible as your keys to your car fitting in in your neighbor's car and starting it up. Now, what would be the chances of that? About zero, wouldn't it be? That's the way condemnation should be with us. It's not a friend. It's an enemy sitting around the table. 
But you've got to remember, you're the ones whose cup's overflowing. What does he speak of when he speaks of overflow? It's not just abundance, but what is that abundance? It's grace. How do I know that? Because he said, surely goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life. And that word mercy in the Hebrew is chesed. It means the grace of God. We translated it as surely goodness and mercy shall follow you, but it's literally surely goodness and grace shall follow you all the days of of your life. Persecution is inevitable. And this is what the Apostle Paul was getting at when he wrote to his protege Timothy in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. He said, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Don't ever mistake the difference between persecution and condemnation. There is a difference. The Apostle Paul, the greatest writer of the New Testament, he said, Timothy, let me tell you something. Come here. I've lived this life. I'm going to tell you, son, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be persecuted. I had a friend, he's gone on to be with Jesus now, but he pastored a church in South Carolina at one time. He was sitting in a restaurant one day, and this woman walked in, and she said, I know who you are. And she said, but I want you to know, God is not real. And he was just gracious to her. He said, ma'am, he is real. She said, no, he's not real. The devil's not real. Heaven's not real. Hell's not real. She said, your church is not real. You're not even real. You're not even a real pastor. And then she turned to walk away from him. She stopped and she said, oh, by the way, that light on your face, that ain't real either. <laughs> That's God's glory. That's what grace looks like. See, when we retaliate and say something we shouldn't be saying, you know, the goodness and grace does not manifest in that situation. She probably saw a man that was glowing like Frankenstein or somebody, you know, just all lit up. Amazing. So why the persecution? Because darkness hates the light. That is the only enemy of darkness, light. We see that truth in John chapter 3, verse 20, where it says, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come to the light. Look at the reason. For fear. For fear that their deeds will be exposed. What is that fear rooted in? Remember, fear is rooted in condemnation. Because they're under condemnation, they're under fear, and that's why they don't like to come to the light. But as we have a different response to people, we allow this grace to bubble up and out of us. Ministry opportunities will find you. There's a narrative in the Bible that exemplifies both life and light moving upon the dead and darkened soul of an unnamed woman. A woman that found her pep assembly in the arms of man rather than the arms of Christ. If there's anybody in the Bible that needed their darkness displaced, it was this woman. But the Ten Commandments couldn't help her. They were only the ministry of condemnation. It would take the light of the world to displace such gross darkness. This woman had lived a checkered and loose life. Oh, she had secrets, but she had no secret place to run to. But then one day, the religious system chased her to the feet of Jesus. And I thought, whoa, wait a minute here now. That's what happened with me. The religious system, I got so tired of it. And it brought me right to the feet of Jesus where I could just grab a hold, ankle holds, and give him my pitiful dandelions. And he said, those are the most beautiful flowers, son, I've ever seen in my life. Ah, oh, it was there in the temple courts that the Pharisees 
saw fit to display this woman's failures on the jumbotron for everybody to see. You see, this woman wasn't facing the fall from a 100-story building. She was facing the fact that she had fallen from the Ten Commandments. She knew that. When the Pharisees brought her in, there was no doubt she was a failure. Oh, there was no doubt she was under judgment. But they brought her to Jesus to trap him because they wanted to see two deaths that day. They brought her to Jesus to condemn her right in front of Jesus. Now, I want you to get these two words in your heart. And they're the words, but God. (laughs) I love what a pastor of mine used to say years ago. He would say, but is the eraser. I love you, brother, but. You might as well just take it. Let's start that over again. I love you, brother, but. Let's start that over again. But is the eraser. But God. But God, the same God that declared persecution was inevitable, would deliver the truth to that sinful woman that condemnation was optional. You see, Jesus didn't deny the fact that this was an adulterous woman that had fallen. He just wanted her to know in his heart everything was okay so far. Why? Because only Christ, being the Alpha and the Omega, could see beyond. He could see beyond the mess that she had made when she had fallen onto the cobblestone street. Jesus was about to put a glory inside of this woman that wasn't transitory. It wouldn't be here one moment and gone the next. It would stay forever. Her pep assembly days were over. He's about to walk her into the Garden of Eden so that she can eat from the tree of life. We see the cadence begin in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group in humiliation. See, that's what the law does. It humiliates you. It shames you, condemns you. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And then they pointed to the law. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Remember that word, but? (laughs) But Jesus, I love it. But Jesus. It was almost like he was sitting there going, la, 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 like a little kid. (laughs) But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground. I love this. I love the suspense. I love it. Now, I've heard this preached many ways and from different angles, and you hear preachers say, well, you know, Jesus was writing the Ten Commandments. Possible, but doesn't say. Jesus was writing the names of the mistresses that each one of those Pharisees had been with. It's a good story, but doesn't say it. I love what our friend Paul White says, Jesus was just writing in the dirt, stalling for time, doodling until he heard the voice of the Father, because the Bible says he doesn't do anything, say anything, unless the Father tells him what to do. And maybe Jesus, you know, he had never been in that situation before. He was relying on the Father. And it wouldn't surprise me, that sounds plausible to me, that Jesus was just stalling for time. And then, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. 
At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the oldest ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Let me stop here for a second. It says, any of you who was without sin. If you look up our English word sin in the Bible, it comes up many, many times. Sin, sinning, sinner, sinful, sins, whatever. And it's usually the noun hamartia, or the verb hamartano. Which one is he going to use here? He said, any of you that are without sin, go ahead and stone her. Is it the person, the noun, or is it her action, the verb? Oh, Jesus is smarter than that. They would have had him either way there. He used a different word, and in fact, it's only used one time in the entire Bible. It's an adjective. It's anamartetos. Listen, what it means is more important. What it means is, Jesus said to those Pharisees, he that is sinless. In other words, if you have never committed a sin in your entire life, then go ahead and stone her. (laughs) That's why they had to walk away. Now let's just give this a different outcome for a second. Jesus is standing there teaching the people all about the love of God. He's already had his encounter with Nicodemus. And do you know it was Nicodemus that Jesus lowered that bomb of John 3.16 on? When Nicodemus was standing in front of him that night. See, we don't think about it like that. But Nicodemus was standing in front of him when Jesus said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But we forget John 3, 17. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but through Him the world will be saved. Now imagine Jesus just released those truths to the people He's teaching. And all of a sudden, here's this woman walked in, and He just said, My daddy didn't send me in the world to condemn the world. And then He says, well, go ahead. She is guilty. Go ahead, stone her. No, He's smarter than that. And so was Papa. Papa said, say this, son. And so when he used that word, anamartetos, it literally meant he that is incapable of sinning. Go ahead and stone her. And so they all dropped their rocks and walked away. But now think about it. Who was the only one left that could stone her? Who was the only one there that was sinless? Who was the only one that had never sinned? Who was the only one incapable of sinning? That was Christ. And under the Mosaic law, it did command that we stone such women. But Jesus said, no. Mercy said, no. Mercy said, no. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Look at her response. No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Or what Jesus was actually saying here is the revelation of grace has empowered you to live a life of no condemnation. I have given you a gift that's bigger than just you didn't get murdered today. I have given you the gift of no condemnation. And wherever you go, you tell people wherever you go what I've done for you, that I have empowered you by a gracious act, one act of my grace to live a life of no condemnation. You don't rebuke darkness. You turn on light. See, we get so religious sometimes. I rebuke that darkness. No, just go turn the switch on and the light will come on and the darkness has to go. Lies are displaced in the presence of truth and condemnation is displaced in the presence of grace. 
I'm talking about the pure gospel of grace that your pastor is preaching to you. I'm telling you lies, condemnation, guilt, fear, shame, all of that will go. Oh, you're going to be so free. You're going to lose your marbles, folks. <laughs> what did Jesus do for the sinful woman? He set her free to live a life of no condemnation. And I love this because now that's done. And Jesus doesn't miss a beat. He turns back to the group that he was teaching. And then we see what Jesus said immediately after this interruption. Verse 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. What was he saying? As much as my light displaces darkness, so does my love displace law. So does my grace displace condemnation. So does my truth displace those lies that have been set up in your heart, that have been driving you to the arms of another man when you should have come to me. One that will love you unconditionally and be good to you. Wow. How can this be? Because life always displaces death. Always. God's mercy always triumphs over judgment. Persecution is inevitable. Condemnation is optional. Now watch this. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. I want you to see this. Friends, listen, this will set you free. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. I want to draw your attention to that little bitty word, no. See it? You see it up there? No. Oh, yeah, I made it big, didn't I? It's a little word with a big heart. Oh, I love that word right there, because look what it's in front of. It's in front of condemnation. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Now, listen to me. The Greek word behind this word, no, is the Greek word, udais. Udais. Udais is a compound word. It takes two words, uday, which means not, and heis, which means one. So when you bring those two words together, it's saying, not one, condemnation. And when they come together, they're actually strengthened. It actually says in the Greek, not even one. Not even one. Not even one condemnation. We're not talking about just your future stuff. We're talking about past. We're talking about present. Not even one condemnation. For who? For those that are in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ Jesus? I'm in Christ Jesus. I love being in Christ Jesus. Oh, he's changed me. I love him. Not even one. I'm wrapping this thing down here. I want to share something with you, though, that I think is important. In the mid-1980s, I was a manager of an electronics company, and we had a piece of equipment that came up missing. I was the one that noticed it. I searched high and low, asked everybody. Nobody had it. The key holders of that company had to take polygraph tests, including me. Anybody ever had a polygraph test done on them? They're frightening. They wire you like for 220, man. You got stuff hanging off you that, I mean, it's just all over the place. You got it going around your belly, around your chest. They're measuring your sweat glands. They're measuring your heart rate. They're measuring uh, your respiratory. They're, they're measuring all this stuff. And it starts off very casual, like, is your name Mark? Yes. Do you live in such a place? Yes. Do you do this? No. Finally, they work their way methodically into that piece of equipment that's missing. And they said, did you take that? No. When they got to that piece of equipment that I had discovered missing, it felt like my heart was going to beat out of my chest. 
I mean, honest, there's only been a couple times in my life where I could feel my heart beating in my head, and that was one of them. I could feel my heart beating in my head, and I thought, what is going on here? I didn't do this. And I went home that day, and about a week or so, maybe a week and a half later, I went to the owners of the company. They were very good friends of mine. And I said, did you ever get the results of that polygraph test? Oh, yeah, we got the results of that. I said, well, was I innocent or guilty? Oh, you were innocent. I tried to tell you that. My point is this. How could you take a man that was so innocent and yet have him feel so guilty? I felt so condemned. I felt so low. I felt so guilty. I felt so shameful. How can that be? It's the same thing the enemy does today. He takes condemnation and puts it on a totally innocent human being. He takes a child of God, one who that has been declared righteous in the eyes of God, which means declared innocent in the eyes of God, in the heart of God, and he says, no, you're not. I'm going to condemn you. I'm going to make you feel guilty. No, guilt is not my portion. Shame is not my portion. Condemnation is not my portion. So what am I saying? They are rogue feelings, friends. They are rogue and they come and go. But I'm telling you, as the message of grace comes, it will start hitting you. You'll be like, what is that? That's just a lie. That's just another lie. It does this to you. Oh, you're going to go through a radical change. You're going to be so free. Here's what Papa said. If we allow the cadence of our emotions to usurp authority over our reality of no condemnation in Christ, then our feelings and our emotions will take us up to a 100-story building and throw us off every time. Displacing fear or living a life of no condemnation begins with the revelation that in our spirit man's, we can never, ever be contaminated ever again by sin. How do we know this? Some of my closing scriptures. Psalm chapter 103, verses 8 through 12. David wrote this under an old covenant, friends, but here's what he wrote. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will He harbor His anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. <laughs> He's removed them. He's got a strict no return policy, friends. They've been removed. They're gone. Wiped out, removed, deleted, whatever you want to call it. Expunged. They're gone. Yeah. Romans 8 opened with that powerful scripture, there is therefore now no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. And then Romans 8, I love this chapter, closes with no separation you see, you and I could have never believed the declaration that's awaiting us at the end of Romans in chapter 8 if he first hadn't had to walk us through the fact that you cannot be condemned. You see, as long as you keep feeling condemnation, it doesn't take a giant leap in your head to feel separated. It's just an illusion. That's all it is. So he walked us through Romans chapter 5, pouring out righteousness and grace and Chapter 6, he, he showed us His grace is greater than our sin. Chapter 7, He showed us we were divorced from Mr. Law. And then chapter 8 begins with no condemnation and ends with no separation. Why? Because He's dealt with our condemnation. 
We see those closed inscriptions in Romans chapter 8, verses 33 through 39. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? Oh, stop and think about that for a second. Listen, it was me for the longest time. It was the enemy. It was other people. But it was never God. Who is the one who condemns is the question. And then he says, no one or not even one. No one. And he says, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, remember I said you're going to have persecution, or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced. Oh, I'm not convicted. I'm convinced. I'm convinced. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, in case we missed anything, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. Listen to me. We were all like the man who fell off of the hundred-story building, but instead of falling into the heart of the earth, we fell into the heart of Christ. And out of his heart's garden grows peace. What kind of peace am I talking about? I'm talking about the kind of peace we found in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Out of his heart's garden grows love. What kind of love? The love that came looking for us while we were yet sinners. I'm talking about that kind of love. Out of his heart's garden grows hope. What kind of hope? The great expectation, a good expectation, a confident expectation of good is going to happen to me today. Out of his heart's garden grows that. Out of his heart's garden grows acceptance. I want you to know something. You are always, always, always accepted in the beloved. He tells us that. Out of his heart's garden grows righteousness, the gift of righteousness, something that you didn't earn. Out of his heart's garden grows grace. Not one, not even one root of condemnation is from our lovely Savior, Jesus Christ. Our hope is not in a wishing well gospel. Remember, I told you it is in an it is well gospel. We possess a confident expectation of good from our Father. Why? Because he has dealt with condemnation in the body of Christ once for all. Jesus' truth displaces the lies of the enemy. Jesus' life displaces death and destruction. Jesus' light displaces darkness and the shadows of darkness. And Jesus' grace displaces all condemnations. Friend, do yourself a favor and quit listening to your polygraph emotions. That's all they are. They're lying emotions. I'm not saying we ought to not be mindful somewhat of our emotions, but when it brings condemnation, no, polygraph emotions. Hear the voice of Jesus saying to you, where 
are your accusers. Has no one condemned you? And what is our response? No one, Lord. You see, she got the revelation. She said the same thing. Not even one. No one, Lord. And then he says, neither do I condemn you. Now go. I am empowering you to go through life graciously and to live a life of no condemnation in Jesus' name. Well, Daddy, I just want to thank you and praise you. I have preached myself very, very happy this morning. I'm just so happy in my heart, Daddy. I want to thank you, Father, that it didn't take a magnifying glass to find these truths. It took the Holy Spirit to bring out such rich, rich forage for us to eat upon. I want to thank you, Father, that I stand upon that word that in Christ there is no condemnation, only hopeful expectations of good things at our Father's hand. I want to thank you, Daddy, for this gift that is alive in me, this gift that displaces death, this gift that displaces darkness, this gift that displaces guilt and fear and shame and goes even to the deeper root, which is condemnation. I want to thank you, Father, as that truth is welling up in my heart. In Jesus' name, amen.